Father, this morning, um, we come before you, and as always, we are um, in need of your grace, in need of your spirit to um, just awaken us, to enlighten our hearts to the truth that is found in your word. I pray uh, that as we look at this book together, we would be inspired and excited by um, sound doctrine and the effect that it is to have upon our lives. Um, I pray that your words would come through, that I would not get in the way, but that you would give us understanding, that you would exalt your word, exalt your truth, and give glory to your son. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right, so our book to, uh, to, that we're looking at together is um, Titus. So go ahead and turn there if you would. And as we've said before, when looking at these epistles, there are some basic questions, three basic questions that we always need to answer before getting into this study, and they are, who wrote the letter, to whom was it written, and why was it written? So the answer to our first question is, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. There's never really been any debate about that. Um, It was written sometime between his first and second Roman imprisonments in Rome. There was a, a space of a few months there of ministry, and he wrote this letter at that time. To whom was the letter written? I'll give you a hint. It's named after the guy. Paul wrote this to his fellow servant and protege, Titus. So what do we know about Titus? Um, Piecing together the different references to this man um, found in the epistles and in the book of Acts, um, we know that sometime during Paul's first missionary journey, um, some believe maybe while he was in Syrian Antioch, a young Greek man named Titus heard his preaching about Jesus. Eventually, Paul would lead this young man to faith in Christ. We see evidence for this fact in Titus verse 4, where Paul calls him my own son after the common faith, indicating that Paul led Titus to salvation. Titus was a Gentile, a Greek, and unlike Paul's other protege, Timothy, he did not grow up worshiping the God of the Bible. And he had never been subjected to any of the Jewish laws, including circumcision. However, his saving faith and God's work in his life, even as a teenager, were so abundantly evident that at a time when the early church leaders were debating the question of Gentile conversion, apart from adherence to Jewish law, Paul brought Titus with him before the Jerusalem council as a living testament to how a Gentile might be born again without the right of circumcision and without adherence to Jewish law. So Titus, after that, traveled with Paul on both his second and third missionary journeys. He was with Paul during his three difficult years in Ephesus, And Paul then sent him as a trusted emissary to the Corinthian church to deliver his letter and to deal with sensitive matters at the church in Corinth. So Paul placed a great deal of trust 
in this young disciple of his. He also accompanied Paul during his months of ministry between his first imprisonment in Rome and then his second imprisonment. And it was at this time that Paul took Titus with him to the island of Crete. So Crete is a, is a large island in the Mediterranean Sea south of Greece. It's about 150 miles across. That's roughly the distance from here to Wichita. Um, Paul's ship had stopped there briefly on his voyage uh, under guard to Rome. And this may have been what had inspired Paul to come back one day and evangelize the people living on this island and share the gospel there. So when Paul was released from prison in Rome, he and Titus then spent several months on the island of Crete evangelizing and planting several small churches in the major towns there. Paul then left Titus on this island to stay and to continue the work that had been started, to continue organizing and teaching these new churches. So then what was the purpose of this letter? Why was it written? Um, It is believed that Paul wrote this letter in response to a report that he had received back from Titus while on Crete. And we don't have this letter. We don't know what was in it. But given the very direct, focused, almost pep talk-like approach that Paul uses in this letter, I think we can infer that Titus actually needed a pep talk. He needed this focused and clear direction. It looks like Paul may have picked up on some discouragement or some frustration from Titus' last communication. Maybe it was because the Cretans were living up to their stereotype as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Or like the King James Version uses, uh, slow bellies. I love that diss. It's perfect. Um, Maybe Titus just didn't want to be there. Uh, Maybe he would have rather been serving somewhere else. Whatever the reasons, Paul comes through with some crystal clear direction and instruction. This letter um, is basically Paul saying, Titus, here's what I want you to do. Here's who I want you to be. Here is what you are to teach, and here is why. So as we skim across the letter this morning, and we look at Each of these directives, these instructions that Paul gives, we should recognize behind them God's priorities for his church. And God's priorities for the church on Crete 2,000 years ago are still his priorities for our church in Lawrence, Kansas, and all around the world. So verses 1 through 4, we have Paul's greeting. Let's go ahead and read them. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father 
and Christ Jesus, our Savior. So this greeting of Paul's is especially rich in theology. In verse 1 through 3, we see Paul affirming the doctrine of election, that God in eternity past had purposed to give eternal life to some, a truth that Paul reaffirms in chapter 2 and verse 14. So in verse 1, Paul states that his priority, his purpose as an apostle was to lead God's elect to faith and to the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. This phrase introduces what will be Paul's theme for the entire letter, and it is the main thrust of his instruction to Titus, that the knowledge of the truth or of sound doctrine should result in godly living. So Paul wrote this letter to Titus to clarify his mission there on Crete, to give him instruction in preparing this church or these multiple home churches for spiritual health, for effective evangelism, and for teaching and sound doctrine. And in each chapter, Paul gives some specific directives for how Titus was to accomplish this mission. So um, in chapter 1, we're looking at what we'll call mission directive number 1. And that is the application of sound doctrine among church leadership. So let's read verse 5 of chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So this was Titus' mission there on Crete, the organization of local churches and the appointing of elders or pastors to lead these local home churches, these local congregations. So verses 5 through 9 outline um, qualifications for these potential elders. Now this is not a list like you would have in a, in a job posting of minimum requirements, but rather these are evidences or hallmarks of spirit-filled men, of spiritually mature men. Paul's basically saying, Titus, here is what you are to be looking for in potential leaders of the church. So the first of these qualifications is that they are to be above reproach. Now this does not mean that they are to be sinless and perfect, but they are to be free from any legitimate accusation or public scandal. The next qualification is they are to be a husband of one wife, a husband consistently, inwardly and outwardly, faithful to his wife. We also see this qualification that their children, who are to be believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So this is a reference clearly to children who are older. Um, it's doubtful that you know, little children are going to be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Um, this is with regard to older children, and uh, this is to be an evidence. A man who is able to lead the church 
ought to be leading his own family to saving faith and sanctification. We also see that an elder or a pastor is not to be arrogant, not to be quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or greedy for gain. So these are all on the negative side. On the positive side, um, potential elders are to be hospitable, lovers of good, self-controlled. That is a a spiritual discipline that comes up over and over throughout the book of Titus. Self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. All of these are outward evidences of the inner working of the Holy Spirit to sanctify the inner man. So then we come to verse 9, and I'd like us to read that. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So this is the next qualification for a potential elder, and it is a demonstrated personal commitment to the study and the application of the word so that he may be able, capable of instruction in it and rebuking those who contradict that sound doctrine. So this phrase, sound doctrine, appears nine times in Paul's writings and five times in his letter to Titus. The Greek word that he uses for sound is very interesting, is hygieno, from which we get our word hygiene. Um, And in the Greek language, it meant to be healthy, to be safe, to be whole. So Paul uses this phrase, healthy doctrine, to signify that our spiritual well-being as individuals, as a church, is the direct result of pure biblical truth. God's people must know and apply biblical truth in order to be spiritually healthy. So where Paul gives this qualification that potential elders must be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, this means a great deal more than simply possessing the ability to teach or the, the sufficient public speaking skills to stand up and give a lecture or having the know-how to crack open a commentary and type up an outline. Paul wants Titus looking for men who are personally mastered by the word to the point that they are able to share healthy doctrine from firsthand knowledge and personal experience. So the second reason that he gives why potential elders must be qualified in sound doctrine is that they can rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. So the ability and the willingness to rebuke false teaching is a qualification for and an essential role for an elder. So then in, Paul, uh, in verses 10 through 16... Paul actually uh, emphasizes the importance of this specific task, this specific role of rebuking false teachers. And then he clarifies who these people really are and what they're like. He labels them as unruly, vain talkers, deceivers, hungry for money, defiled, unbelieving, abominable, disobedient, and reprobate. 
you kind of get the impression that he's, he's not a fan of these people. Um, in verse 16, he says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. The significance of works as evidence of sound doctrine and sound faith comes up over and over again in this, in this letter. So Paul takes the corrupting influence of these false teachers very, very seriously. Hence the importance of Titus' mission to appoint local church elders as safeguards against their influence, against their false teaching. So in this mission directive for appointing elders, we can see God's priority for the church is that of spirit-filled leadership and sound doctrinal teaching. So in chapter 2, we're looking at Titus' mission directive number 2. Um, or, so the first, the first mission directive was sound doctrine applied to leadership. Um, in chapter 2, it is sound doctrine applied in the church. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Um, He says, Titus, this is what you are to be doing while they're on Crete, teaching sound doctrine yourself. He then proceeds to give Titus some examples of what that sound doctrine, what that healthy truth looks like and how it relates to each member in the church. So Paul's examples of sound doctrine are not, you know, some out there elevated pie in the sky systematized principles, but very highly practical instruction, goals for spiritual discipline and how believers are to live, who they are to be, and how the gospel should impact and influence their daily behavior. So if we, if we then look at what Paul gives as examples of sound doctrine, we, we can put together that healthy doctrine equals biblical truth applied to daily life. By contrast, unhealthy doctrine or unsound doctrine could mean that uh, truth or teaching which has no impact whatsoever, places no demands upon how we live and what we do. Just like he said, these false teachers professed to know God, but they denied him by their works, the evidence of false Teaching, unsound doctrine. So healthy doctrine is biblical truth applied to life. Um, so we see in this book, and Titus is really unique in that unlike most of, other, uh, of Paul's other letters, uh, he really does not deal with correcting theological error um, held by the church. And he seems to have some level of confidence that these churches on Crete possess correct theology, that they're well-grounded and they're where they need to be in terms of their doctrine. Um, um, but his, his main concern, Paul's main concern, seems to be how their correct theology gets fleshed out in daily living. So he goes down this list and he addresses each specific group, each demographic within the church body. The first is older men. So who, what age group does this refer to? Paul used this term to speak about himself um, when he was over the age of 60. So this 
speaks specifically to those members in the church of an advanced age, senior saints. And some of Paul's goals for older men in the church are that they be sober-minded, be dignified, self-controlled, again, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. These lists are not comprehensive. These are not all of the spiritual disciplines or goals that we are to, to strive after as believers. But Paul was pointing out some specific areas um, that he wanted to focus on that were of high priority um, within each of these church groups or demographics. Um, to older women, he says that they are to be reverent, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, teachers of good, training and mentoring the younger women. To the younger women, he says that they are to love their husbands. Now, this is instruction that is not conditional, not predicated on the husband's worthiness, because as we all know, we can be difficult to love. But this is because of the will of God. It is an unconditional instruction to love your husbands and children, who can also at times be difficult to love. To be self-controlled, there it is again. To be pure, workers at home. To be kind and submissive to their husbands. To the younger men, those that are over 12 and under 60. He gives this single goal. They are to be self-controlled. Now again, this is not comprehensive. It is not that this is the only spiritual goal that young men are to be striving after. But by making it his single admonishment to this group, Paul is emphasizing how absolutely critical this one spiritual discipline, this one fruit of the Spirit is in particular. In Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 28, it says, A man without self-control is like a city that is broken into and without walls. Paul understands that failure to cultivate this essential spiritual discipline is to be completely spiritually defenseless, vulnerable, and exposed to any assault by the enemy. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It is the work of the Spirit. And it is vital to spiritual health. So in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2, Paul kind of switches gears. He's still in that younger men category, but he's speaking directly to Titus and giving him instruction and goals. So let's look at verse 7 of chapter 2. He says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So these are, these are some goals that, that Paul is setting for Titus. And he says that the primary purpose of all of this, this pursuit of godly living is to silence the opponents of Christianity. Verse 9, he addresses slaves. Now, broadly, this could, this could apply to all employees, um, but specifically in this cultural context, it was to slaves. And it says that they are to be submissive to their masters, not argumentative, 
not pilfering um, or embezzling, and showing all good faith. And then let's look at verse 10. He says, So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So this this, um, admonishment in verse 10 could well apply to all of those previous instructions. That in everything we may adorn the doctrine of our Savior. How we live, what we do, and who we are gives to the world around us an opinion of the gospel. And Paul is saying we are to live in a way to give the right opinion to the world about our Lord, to adorn the gospel. This concept of adorning the gospel, of giving the right opinion of Jesus Christ, is at the heart of Paul's instructions in this letter. Godly living is what adorns the gospel in the eyes of the world, resulting in effective evangelism. So godly living within the church is essential to effective evangelism. So in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 2, Paul very beautifully gives the why for all of this instruction. As we said earlier, sound doctrine or healthy doctrine is the gospel applied to daily living. And in, these, in this, this five-verse mini-sermon, um, Paul backs all of this up by going to the gospel and expounding upon what the gospel really is. So let's look at verses 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So I want us to look at verse 12, where it says that the grace has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This word that is used for training is um, uh, in the Greek language, paideo, I need to get Michael to pronounce this, paideo, from which we get our English word of pedagogue or pedagogy. And it was typically used to describe the education of children. It means to train, to teach, to discipline a child so that they can mature and realize their own full potential. So the gospel, we're told here itself, is our schoolmaster, training us up to turn from ungodliness and worldly desires to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly. So we as God's children... We cannot grow in maturity. We cannot reach our potential unless and until we embrace this truth that we were saved to live a godly life. Verse 14 lays this out even more emphatically and explicitly. So let's look at verse 14. Paul says, speaking of our Lord Jesus, who gave himself for us He took our place. Why did he do this? For this purpose, 
to redeem us from all lawlessness. He took our place to buy us out of our sin. Jesus gave himself for you and for me, not only so that we would not have to pay for our sins, but so that we would not sin. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. This phrase, for his own possession, could also be translated a people specially chosen. Specially chosen for what? For what purpose? To be zealous for good works. The word Paul uses here for zealous is actually the word zealot. And historically, zealots were a, a specific uh, sect of, of Jewish religious political activists um, who were known, who were famous for their live free or die commitment to what they believed in. There was no compromise in them. There was no quit. Um, and Paul is, is saying, this is the attitude that we are to have in our pursuit of good works. I think we kind of have an aversion to this. We're kind of allergic to this kind of, of, of verbiage, to this intensity of connotation. It seems kind of extreme, doesn't it? Um, Paul didn't make a mistake when he chose this word. In shedding his blood to buy us out of our sin, it was Jesus' express purpose that we should be specifically chosen to fanatically pursue good works. And we are waiting for the blessed hope. This is what we are to be about while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So then chapter 3, we have Titus, mission directive number 3, and that is sound doctrine applied in the world or in our relationships to the world. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 deal with how um, the believers on Crete are to behave towards those who are unsaved on the island, um, who come across their path daily. So let's look at verses 1 through 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil to no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And these kind of instructions might seem difficult for you or I to follow um, in our daily interactions with unsaved people. But I promise you, for the people who were a part of Cretan society, uh, this would have cut right across the grain of their cultural norms. Um, see, Cretan culture was known for its dirty dealing. Things were often so cutthroat on this island that um, in Greek uh, common language, the word for a cheat and for a liar came to literally mean to be a Crete or a Cretan. So this approach of kindness, of speaking ill of no one, wouldn't have come naturally. And so Paul gives their motivation for why they are to treat unbelievers in this way. Um, so let's read verse 3. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, 
slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul wants these Christians to remember. He wants us to remember that before Christ, our lives were characterized by sin, just like every unsaved person who crosses our path every day. And he again goes back to the gospel as the foundation for their godly living. Specifically in chapter 3, he says, the gospel is the reason for how, is the motivation for how you are to treat unbelievers. So let's continue reading um, in verses 4 through 7. He has said, you know, you once were characterized by sin, remember, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It's amazing how Paul, throughout this book, as he emphasizes over and over and over that believers are to be zealous for good works, ready for every good work, devoting themselves to good works, he's also careful to point out that works contribute nothing to our salvation. They are simply the evidence of it. He says, He's anticipating the question that these Cretan believers might ask, why should I treat this person with kindness and with love? They're a lying, evil, slow belly. Why? Why should I? He says, because of what God has done for you. And in verse 8, he says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul is saying to Titus, this is how we accomplish the mission of spiritual health and effective evangelism within the church. These things are profitable. Good works, spiritual disciplines are profitable for effective evangelism and spiritual health. Devote yourselves to them. Then in verses 10 and 11, he gives a brief outline for dealing with church discipline, which we, we have looked at and will not get into. But then um, verse 12, Paul shares with Titus uh, his plans for, for Titus' future ministry um, and basically tells him he's getting ready to send him a replacement. So be ready. Um, in verse 13, he gives Titus some instructions on receiving Zenos and Apollos, who were likely the bearers of this letter uh, to Titus and who would be serving alongside of him. Um, then as, as well, in chapter 3 and verse 14, we see this closing admonition. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So this is the final echo of the theme of Paul's letter. This truth that the knowledge of the truth or sound doctrine, healthy biblical teaching should result in godly living and the pursuit of good works. This was God's priority for his church on Crete 2,000 years ago. It is his priority for his church today, here in Lawrence and around the world.